you do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. Bugliosi, call your first witness. Government calls you Buell Fraser. Come on, if you would, please, sir. If, you, if you'd come forward, raise your right hand, please. Do you solemnly swear or affirm that the testimony you will give in the proceedings before this court will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth to help you, God? I do. Thank Take you. seat and witness stand, please. Be seated. That evening after work, you brought Mr. Oswald back to Irving, is that correct? That's correct. The following morning, Friday, November the 22nd, 1963, did anything unusual happen while you were eating breakfast? Uh, yes, sir, it did. Uh, Eventually, you and he got into your car. Yes, sir. When you got into the car, did you notice that he put something in the back seat? Uh, yes, sir. As I was getting in the car, I noticed a package on the uh, back seat. Did you ask him what it was, and if so, what did he say? Uh, yes, sir, I did ask him, and he says, you know, that's the curtain rods that I was going to pick up from Miss Payne. Okay. Once you arrived at the book depository building that morning, where did you park your car? Uh, in the employee parking lot. As I understand it, when the two of you got out of the car, he started walking ahead of you to the entrance of the building. Is that correct? That is correct. As he was walking ahead of you, was he carrying the bag that had been on the back seat? Mr. Frazier, I understand you watched the presidential motorcade from outside the front door of the book depository building. Is that correct? Yes, sir. And you heard the rifle shots? Yes, sir. How many did you hear? Three. After the shooting that afternoon, was there a roll call of employees to see if all the employees had returned to the building? Yes, sir, there was. Were all employees present at the time of the roll call, or was anyone missing? Uh, everyone was uh, present except Mr. Oswald. He was the only employee who was missing, is that correct? That's correct. Thank you, Mr. Fraser. No further questions. Mr. Stamps? Well, Mr. Fraser, do you feel like you've just been at the racetrack? Well, sometimes, you know, you, you can be there and, you know, it's an <laughs> enjoyable experience. So we... Ha, ha, ha. Wow. Is anybody else tired? Feels like we've been running a marathon there. I mean, I think Bugliosi, if there ever was an example of hustling the star witness off the uh, the the witness chair as fast as possible, that certainly qualifies as one of the fastest. Wow. Yeah. Once again, uh, 
just shown how shown to you how how things uh, went at this mock trial with uh, some of the most important witnesses to Oswald uh, and what was going on that day. Today we're back with part three of Richard Gilbride, uh, author of Matrix for Assassination, and the upcoming article inside job there's been some speculation about where we can find this article and it's not published yet um and when it does i will let you know where you can go actually read it uh you know he goes into a lot more in depth than we can of course cover here on this tiny little podcast of mine but today we're going to wrap it up uh it's 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 kind of uh I, i was debating on whether or not to break this episode up into two parts um but I decided not to. I'm just going to give it all to you. And we're going to wrap Richard Gilbride up today. Um, so hang in there. This is kind of a two-parter. You know, you can kind of take a break, come back, and listen to the second part if you like. Um, but we are going to conclude Inside Job and, and the uh, all the evidence contained therein today. So stay tuned for that. And uh, now a word from my friends at the ROKC. It is almost the anniversary, people. I mean, we are, you know, basically a week out, I I guess. Um, So, I know it's last minute. Book your flight now. If you got plans, if you're going to Australia, I would definitely recommend checking out uh, Greg Parker and the ROKC and their Australian conference that they're having in Melbourne. So if you can swing it, do it. Uh, and if you would like to get tickets, here's your information, people. This is a very dangerous and uncertain world. No one expects uh, that uh, our life will be easy. Certainly not in this decade, and perhaps not in this century. The ROKC. Reopen the Kennedy Case proudly presents the first-ever Australian JFK Conference in Melbourne, Australia, this November. Join us on a quest for justice and truth with inspirational speakers and some of the world's leading authorities on the Kennedy assassination. Featured guest speakers include Citizens for Truth about the Kennedy assassination speaker and acclaimed author James DiEugenio, Gail Nix Jackson, author and granddaughter of Orville Nix, and Australia's very own Peter Morris. For more info... Buy your tickets at stickytickets.com slash reopen Kennedy Case Conference because justice is never too late. That is right. Get your sticky tickets now, people. All right, today, like I said, we're going to conclude uh, Richard Gilbride. If you'd like to read more right now, though, that Richard Gilbride has done, uh, just Google Gilbride and ROKC essay. I I believe it's on their old version of their forum, the R, the old ROKC forum. There's a section called essays, and in and therein included, you will find a couple of great essays by Richard Gilbride called "The Elevator Escape Theory" and uh, "The Piper of Potemkin Village." So. Please check those out. Um, there's been a lot of great work out there. Uh, I guess it's been a couple years now 
there's a there was a publication called the the third decade, the fourth decade, you know, and of course this represents a ten year span since the uh assassination and it was kind of a uh quarterly uh or or, or bi monthly uh magazine uh that was published that you can find online and I would recommend searching for any articles by a man named William William Weston. Um He's another unique individual who had some very different ideas about what was going on in this Texas School Book Depository. And a huge inspiration for Richard Gilbride uh, to dive in and take things further. Um, And that's what you're going to hear today. So without further ado, I bring to you Mr. Richard Gilbride. What's up, everybody, and welcome to the Loon Gumman Podcast, and welcome back for part three of my conversation with my special guest, Richard Gilbride, author of Matrix for Assassination, and also uh, many articles that can be found on the internet, as well at ROKC Forum. Richard, thank you for joining me again. Well, thank you for inviting me here, so. Oh, no problem. No problem. You've been a big inspiration to me and my research, and it, it truly is my pleasure to have you on this show. And uh, and uh, talking to me about this, you know, your new article exclusively. Um, so let's jump right into it, Richard, and uh, pick up right where we left off, okay? Well, yeah, my, my next section is uh, Lillian Mooneyham, who's a um, really critical witness, one of the most important in that case. Um, she, she told the FBI on January 10th that um, four and a half to five minutes after the assassination, she saw someone up in the Cypress Nest, and she was only on the uh, uh, third floor there of um, the Dallas County Criminal Court Room, so only 200 feet away. And um, you know, she sees trousers, but she couldn't make out much about him. And uh, um, I hope the community eventually uh, makes up their mind that this was Jack Darby, because when you think about it, there wasn't anybody else that could have been there. He, he took an elevator uh, back up and uh, he was, you know, he's, he's there at the time. Otherwise, the floors were empty of, of um, anyone. You know, he, he has to be the man. And uh, you know, some people will speculate that he was a uh, sniper just waiting behind. But I mean, uh, you, just, you can't um, realistically show such kind of reckless disregard right. for the fact that law enforcement people are going to be swarming the building. Yeah. The uh, sniper team being a clean, carefully prepared escape. You know, it's really a um, simplifying principle that you have to use to sort through the uh, all the information you're going to get about you know imposters or what have you when you're doing. Well, you think are imposters because um, the people who did this thing they got the heck out of there within within two minutes they were out of the building. Really, and um, so she's a real important. Uh, um, witness, because if you have to, you have to decide business, it just destroys the whole police case. It destroys things. You know, you don't know if he planted shells. You don't know um, if he planted the, the, the top gun rest carton that Oswald and they found some fingerprints on that thing. It was only five or ten pounds. He just might have, um, missed it during the course of his normal work day and, you know, someone decided to place that inside the nest. Right. They'll frame him. You know, as they hold his brother in jail, they don't believe the so-called evidence. Right. I mean, it's just, uh, 
you know, a perfect opportunity to uh, frame him by that manner. So, I mean, uh, it has to be going up there. And uh, so I go out with that. And I also, um, there's a letter that uh, the Dory family received in 1967. And I believe I've deciphered the postmark on the letter. It looks like it came from uh, Charlotte. This is in uh, FBI uh, uh, 105. 82555, section 232, page 9. And it looks like it was Aaron L. from Charlie. And, uh, and basically, it enclosed the mimeograph report that it said it was going to go to a bunch of people. It says, if you were involved in assassination, Mike Mullen would make a statement to the press that someone in the city and the state protect him. So, I mean, people were on to this guy uh, way back when. Wow, I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's an interesting... Uh, Part of the file, but the, the thing was the FBI um, tore off whoever wrote it, and uh, they threw away the mimeograph report. Yeah. So you just don't, um, you know, get to find out anymore. And uh, uh, my next section is on truly, but I'm going to skip that here today. And uh, um, the thing was, it doesn't wrap up all that um, truly is uh, involved with. Um, and you just keep popping up throughout this uh, study. Right. And uh, <laughs> my next section is a, pers- a personal favorite. Um, it's called uh, Eternal Return, the Lundtrum Encounter. We examine. And I go over this thing. This, I, I just got uh, me and the Arrow KC, KC guys were uh, at which end we uh, just trying to uh, uh, debate this point because there's a... Um, a fairly sizable contingent that believes that um, this whole one-term encounter between Oswald, Baker, and Truly was a hoax. Right. And I, I take the uh, point of view that it was, it really happened. Okay. And uh, uh, I'm gonna just uh, touch on the high points here. But I do a, uh, a realistic timeline for the, for the women, the girls, uh, Sandra Adams and uh, Noah, Victoria Adams and Sandra Stiles. I had them coming downstairs, get to the elevators at um, 70 seconds. So, on the other hand, uh, when, you, when you look at the timeline for Truly and Baker, you, you can't go, uh, can't make them any slower than getting to a point where um, they should have seen the girls by 50 seconds they get to um, William Shelley's office. And so they should have seen the girls across the warehouse floor by that time, by playing time. So you have to ask yourself, well, um, can I make the girls 20 seconds faster? Or do I make these guys 20 seconds slower? But it's, um, I'm, they're not Olympic sprinters, and just, they just can't uh, see how they could have gone much, much faster. And the problem is the evidence that we're given um, just tells us that, that truly Baker, um, went very quickly. In fact, uh, I was forced to reread a uh, study done by uh, Michael T. Griffith uh, back in uh, 97 or 8 or so. And uh, he suggested actually that Julian Baker had made it up to the second full lunchroom by 50 seconds in that article. I said, wow, that's, a, that's something to think about. And uh, that's my present uh, position. They, no matter how slow you make them, they, they really should have seen these girls on the way out the uh, warehouse. And uh, 
know, the thing is, if they did see them before they ran past the elevators and go out the back door, then they did see them. They went all the way to the elevators. They didn't see them. They went all the way to the second floor. They didn't see them. So, I mean, how do they miss possibly seeing them unless they were in their lunchroom? And I introduced another piece of evidence that, because uh, Adams had a uh, memory of uh, seeing a uh, fairly big black man uh, inside of the building, right near the loading dock, after she got down the stairs. And uh, she told him, she told the president that shot. She, she told us to uh, offer Barry Ernest uh, 2002 or so. Jim uh, uh, Allen, uh, the implication was that he had altered her testimony because uh, it was written in her testimony that she had encountered um, uh, uh, Bill Shelley and Bill Lovelady downstairs, but they were you know, still out in the rail yard. And, uh, you know, it, she just uh, said she denied that I've ever seen them, and Sanger Smile also denied seeing them. So, I think there's a little bit of fiction in the uh, testimony that um, yeah, they all introduced. In order to, uh, the idea was that they uh, wanted to uh, get her down the stairs later than she contended, so that um, she, cause she should have uh, went into the uh, fleeing assassin, Lee Harvey Oswald. They couldn't uh, find a way for uh, her to escape that unless they put in uh, John and Lovely upstairs. So, um, so I was told, told uh, Barry Ernest that she had run into a fairly big black man, and Baker had also seen an older large black man sitting toward the back stairs. And uh, so we, we have, um, I'm, I'm almost positive that this was Troy West. And, Usually sat at his um, wrapping table in the corner during lunch. Right. So, to my mind, if Baker sees him sitting there when he reaches the corner where the elevator is, but probably he got up after they had gone upstairs, and then he walked over to the elevators. That's where Sandra Adams ran into him. I mean, Victoria Adams ran into him. So, um, you know, it seems that the Baker um, sighting. Uh, of him happened first, and then he got up and stood and walked over to the elevators, and that's when Victoria Adams saw him. So that to me is another um, indication that um, they did not um, get out the building before the police, um, truly the Baker, arrived there. And you also have the uh, Dorothy Garner statement. Um, but she says after Miss Adams went downstairs, she, Miss Connor, she saw Miss Drew and the policeman come up. So the key is, I mean, the Victoria Adams never saw a uh, person on her way down the stairs. So how in the heck did she miss Julian Baker unless they were in the uh, lunchroom? You know, I just, I cannot for life to me understand it. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, because you know, when you was thinking <clears throat> about you know, the timeline, uh, Victor, and by the way, that's a great book if y'all haven't read it out there. Um, the Girl on the Stairs by Barry Ernest, I highly recommend it. Um, not just for the Victoria Adams part, but also his, his, his you know, solo journey and his story of uh, researching the case. But, you know, you also have uh, another guy that says he went up to the fourth floor 
shortly after the shots, named Otis Williams, who was out on the front stairs at the time of the shots. Uh, he says he didn't yeah. see anybody either. Yeah, he was, um, I think he uh, exaggerated the time that he went inside, because he was kind of a portly guy. And, uh, you know, he did go up to the fourth floor and look out the window with some office girls up there. But um, I think he was um, uh, exaggerating the, the uh, quickness with which he um, went up there. Yeah, you know, I couldn't, at the end of the day, I, could, I planned my first essay, but I could, really couldn't uh, figure out. And I got confronted with this at Lancer when we had a discussion on my first essay, and I had to keep going. I really, I couldn't uh, say for sure about him. Right. Um, part of the uh, confusion about uh, Baker is he, he wrote a, a very uh, confusing affidavit, actually. <laughs> And you have to remember that he's not a, uh, he's not going to night school uh, trying to study to be an architect. But it was kind of, uh, yeah, I think he had a nickname uh, called Mamasan on the uh, <laughs> force. You know, he was, a, you know, a dog that's kind of dope. Right. And um, so he, he had to, the depository, he had gone out to Parliament, Parkland, Hospital, and then he went out to Love Field. Then he came back to the DPD homicide and wrote out his affidavit. And he, he wrote down, as we reached the third or fourth floor, I saw a man walking away from the stairway. I mean, this is, um, you know, totally discombobulated. When you look at the uh, floor plans for the repository, uh, you know, it's just like, you know, how can you describe this? But, I mean, if you just push in with, um, you run up a bunch of steps outside, big wall, that must be the second floor, and then the split-level uh, stairway, so to him, it's like the third or fourth floor. And as he did, he was correct because he didn't see someone walking toward him. You know, he saw someone walking away, but he could have done a lot better. That's all I can say. Yeah. Um, and he also, there's another um, particular thing that, uh, the beef that the uh, hoax people have is that he, um, while he was writing his affidavit up, uh, Oswald was brought into the same back room in the interrogation office, you know, where Lou Baker was, and he didn't mention, you know, that the suspect was right in Philo. Right. So, I mean, uh, you know, what's, what's the reason for this, you know, it's just like, uh, to me, it's like, um, you, you just can't, you can't know every um, nuance of everything, you know, God only knows why he didn't say this. The same way as um, Oswald left his wedding ring on the, on the, um, Dress a beer that morning. Maria's running. You're living. Oh, and uh, you can't know why he did this. Some people think that, um, oh, it's because he knew that he was going to shoot the president. You can't, you know, can't draw that connection. Right. Uh, he knew something was was up. He was, he was the, you know, big time. He might not make it back. I think and kind of left that as a uh, token of love for, for Marina in case he just got sliced and dice, say. But, um, you know, you can't necessarily say that there was um, proof that he uh, charged the president. Just don't know. Don't know the reason. I think, to my mind, the reason was um, Oswald had a well on his eye already. And you could see it, the boys, so to speak, had left him up. And he just, uh, to my mind, Baker had a, a momentary uh, um, uh, impulse of compassion. And he just, he just didn't want to keep piling on this guy. 
Or he might even have heard something about the tip of matter and just not want to, uh, you know, associate it in his own uh, potential guilt as he led the suspect away and he killed him on a cop on the force. You know, it's just uh, something made him hold back. We won't know. We won't ever know why. But, I mean, you just can't know everything. Right. To me, it's like you can't make too much out of it. And um, there's another uh, uh, telling clue in the, uh, in the narrative is that uh, when um, when Baker and Truly were in the front lobby and uh, you know Truly often showed the way upstairs, uh, they ran out and they ran into the World Cup counter and it was unexpectedly last judge. And Baker bumped into Truly. They both mentioned this in their testimonies. So why, in the main line of action, is this getting to the rear of the building? So why would they add in this little feature of their testimony? You know, they were making it all up. I mean, to me, it's just like, uh, that's too Hollywoodish to uh, be making it up. Um, also, I uh, touched on the uh, Secret Service reconstruction film. And this, uh, even though they, they have the show the agent reenacting Oswald, he's sitting down, he's doing this and that. Uh, the thing is, if they can, um, they can try and paint this guy as guilty as, as that he, uh, well, I'm losing my train of thought here. But, uh, but it, well, I think what you're trying to say is even, even going through all the steps that supposedly Oswald would have had to to get him down to that second floor lunchroom, it was still possible. Back into the building. We've been outside watching the parade. We saw him. We saw 
Oswald well, in a small storage room on the ground floor from uh, uh, holding uh, the, the Vice President Opus Campbell. And this is zero cooperation. He had uh, two FBI interviews right after this, a Secret Service interview. And uh, he watched the motorcade with Doty Reed and she had a whole bunch of interviews. And there is not one whisper of, of this um, on this Oswald going into a small story. So this, I don't see how you can interpret this anything but double hearsay. There was a lot of chaos that afternoon. It's really um, a big principle of research is you have to get cooperation. You know, so uh, to, me, to my mind, it's the, um, it's all kind of slight hand by um, Roy Truly. Because he's putting focus on the one Trump. And even in his FBI interview, he kind of skirts right over any problems that he had the elevators. Because he held up a couple times. You know, I'd bring those elevators downstairs. And the thing was, he said nothing about the elevators in the press. Right. And, um, so I guess he, uh, the major thing is got to keep hidden from, uh, from the cop. He's going to uh, keep the west elevator hidden and also keep the sixth floor hidden and work on personally. When we got to the fifth floor, they ran over to the east elevator, and they took that up to the roof, up to the seventh. So they totally avoided anything on the sixth floor. So he kept the, the cop unaware of anything going on with the sixth floor or the west elevator. You know, it's perfect hours. Uh, and this is this is his whole this uh, whole strategy, even when dealing with um, the authorities or with the yeah, well, they probably weren't. They probably weren't betting on an officer running into the building that soon. I, I wouldn't think. And you could almost see truly, you know, standing there across the street watching. And then he sees one, you know, going in there. He's like, "Oh shit! Let me, you know, let me run over there and." Uh, yeah. Well, the hyperdrive mode. Yeah. You know, it, just, uh, it happened about fifteen or twenty seconds faster than. He planned on it, you know. Yeah. And uh, but he knew what he had to do. Uh, so there was no way he could solve. You know, I've worked with um, police uh, before when I early in my paint days. I, I did some highway bridges and uh, had to work with police on the road and just uh, communicate with them and sometimes receive or sometimes do instructions. And uh, say if they're trained, uh, they have sharpened uh, senses, acute senses, and the communication skills just. Uh, it's all snap to it. It's all like it happens about three times faster than uh, in normal life. So I mean, I don't see how um, truly could slow Baker down inside the lock. You know, I just don't see them having like a twenty-second delay. I'm talking about the Cowboys or whatever. You know, yeah. But I mean, it's just like uh, I don't see how you could slow him down. I mean, the thing was is when you uh, look at the. Uh, Film footage, CBS one reports, and they talk about these things. Uh, truly, um, actually remarked that they, they, it all took a few seconds for them to get back there to the elevator. Because Baker is more of a, um, uh, he's more into the fudge factor to make it monitors friendly. He says, well, it took, uh, well, a minute and a half to get there. But I think he's totally fudging it. And that is, some people say, um, you know, Baker would never tell a lie, but I think 
think he was telling a lie. I don't think he's capable of telling a lie about the location or the place. Um, but he's capable of telling a lie, say, about a Coke or about how much time it took to get there. Right. It helps out the uh, investigation. I don't think he wants to rock the boat, you know? Look at me like he was a good cop, and this is how I, when I look at the food to him, uh, also at the London trial, I don't see how anyone, especially, he's, he's one of the only heroes on that day. He's basically, uh, he's being modest about it. He's a pretty modest guy. He was, um, you know, even though he wasn't, uh, uh, cut out to be an architect, he, he was a damn good cop, and, uh, should be given credit for that, you know. He's definitely one of the few yeah. heroes. Uh, okay, next I get into uh, flaws. I kind of do a rehash of uh, Charles Kevin. So that's um, I'm kind of a repeat of Sylvia Mars um, study on him. Right. And uh, that, the next section is really my own research of Frazier and the elevator power, which that came out totally different than expected when I re researched it. Cause I had written a section about this, uh, one of my essays, The Piper Up. Uh, when she went back in the building, she found out the power had been cut off on the passenger elevator. We had a good little time for this because uh, she was listening to radio broadcast at the time. It was uh, powering off about 1240. And, um, and sure enough, at the uh, rear of the building, Rooney was, um, uh, he had the power go off on the freight Because Frazier, he he was out on the steps, and then after the shots, you know, he, he said he stood out there and he kind of watched everybody eating and he got got hungry. And you know, what do you want to do after you see the president's head get blown off? You want to go eat your lunch, right? So <laughs> he he stands out there for a little while, I guess, and then decides to head to the basement to eat his lunch for some reason. Uh, on the fifth floor, in the basement, where there was no opening. 
shit really can't tell. But, um, the thing was, I, um, I initially thought it was impossible that Jack Darwin could have been the guy that took off the power to elevators when I did this essay. And you, uh, you see it on the fifth floor. Could have been monkeying around with the machine room there and then just walked up to the roof, shut off the other elevators, and we're waiting around. And I said, well, good man, but, but it seems unlikely because if you uh, get into uh, the tidying up the evidence, which is what Willie and Mooneyham had seen, so a little bit redundant to have him also shut off the elevators. Because the purpose of shutting them off would be to delay the police search. I don't see any other reason why he had them shut off. And so, um, it seems to me that there'd be an emergency, uh, you know, cut switch, kill switch somewhere. And, uh, I contacted a professional about this matter. And, uh, you know, I was really, uh, cagey. I said, uh, I'm investigating an accident at a building, you know, and blah, blah, blah. And it happened in the 60s. And, this was an old, uh, international high strip building, seven stories, and then, uh, constructed in 1901, whatever. And, uh, so he said, he initially told me, no, it was probably, uh, one of the way to shut off the elevator to, um, go up to the machine room up on the roof, because, um, these are really old systems. Uh, you know, pretty limited, um, electronics back then. So I said, well, the whole building was upgraded in 1962. They had a passenger over there, and he constructed the front of the building and uh, this thing. So, oh yeah, by that time, definitely, absolutely. You have a kill switch, put into it. So it did be um, like a little pull-down thing, like a circuit breaker that would, um, you know, it sort of cut the power to your elevators. And uh, where would this be? I mean, if you look at the, uh, you'd want to have an easy, uh, you know, someplace it was like a workplace accident. So involving the elevator, you want to be able to run to the kill switch, shut it down. Right. But if you want on the first floor or the basement, but if you look at the basement diagram, I mean the first floor diagram, there's no wall space. There's overhead doors right up to the uh, lip of the elevator shaft. I mean, just don't look for any kind of switch. But you have plenty of room in the basement. Of course, you want to keep it away from any sense of horseplay. So you definitely put this thing, kill switch down in the basement. So you have to um, look at Wesley Fraser as um, responsible for that. And certainly not as the, uh, uh, it's not his idea to do it. I mean, he's obviously following somebody's instructions because he's just a 19 year old kid. And uh, I, I came up with, I had made a transcript of a C-SPAN interview and he did with the um, Sixth Floor Museum. And I kept this transcript to myself. It's pretty basic. And uh, he talks a little bit of his time um, in the basement. And he uh, talks to a, a couple of plain clothes officers coming downstairs and uh, also uniformed policemen. But he, he directs their attention over to the uh, other stairway. And, because he had thought he heard footsteps on the other stairway. He was down near the corner stairway where the stairs went all the way to the roof. And he was pointing out to over by the conveyor belt and there was another set of stairs that would take up to the first floor. 
So he was where the um, field switch we were met um, when we were talking to the officers. Right. And, uh, well, it's, it's funny how the uh, the timing of the when the car was cut. Good uh, morning, because he was uh, he just got to the second floor, met a couple of um, office workers out there, and when he tried the elevator again, this wouldn't go. It was just like the uh, person cutting the power was careful not to trap him in between floors. That would have been a uh, dead giveaway. But the uh, the real critical um, discovery I made here um, was a uh, okay. So we know there was a power outage to the elevators during the early minutes of the police trips. And this happened about. 
and uh, his, his testimony said roughly 50 feet from me, but his HSCA interview was a good 100 yards or 150 yards. So the story kind of um, changed according to time. And the uh, thing was that uh, Eddie Fields, who worked in the old warehouse, just told me uh, a real well, remarkable story that really throws um, faces in the count to question. Shields, uh, uh, he was on the first floor of the old warehouse when Fraser pulled in his car. And uh, well, he said, uh, I think Charles Jubenthal out there and asked Fraser where his rider was. He told him I dropped him off in the building. Yeah. I mean, this is, and they go through this a couple times, but I mean, this, the uh, interview on uh, on a stage, it's also my shirt. He said, uh, someone hollered out the window and said, where's your writer? To your recollection, Fraser says, I dropped him off at the building. And Teal said, yes. You know, so, um, we really have, uh, we have to wonder whether uh, Fraser himself who brought his rifle to the book depository. Okay. He let Oswald off in his um, little lunch sack of uh, cheese sandwich and apple, but, um, the rear corner, the rear lot, and got uh, driven off by himself into the uh, parking area, and then carrying a uh, rifle into the building. That's the one that could be all in that field. Right. And uh, um, they had a little peep, peep side on it, kind of a little thumb size, uh, well, not a normal scope, but um, if you looked at it from a distance, you wouldn't see a rifle without a scope. None of the uh, seven or so witnesses to a rifle saw a scope on, on up in the sniper's nest. And what's, what's uh, super weird is that this uh, is uh, the very first broadcast of when uh, uh, the crime lieutenant, uh, Carl Day, walked out of the building with a rifle at 1.57 p.m. Uh, crime lieutenant J.C. Day just came out of that building, reported a British 303 rifle, telescopic went. Now, this reporter, um, he, he wouldn't know a rifle, wouldn't know uh, an infield from a, a Mauser, from a Mammoth, a Connell. He just would not know it, except what was told to him. And he probably asked something like, uh, what make a rifle was used in the test maker. They probably told him British 303. Right. And, 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 he, and for any reason, they just decided to, uh, you know, I, I think he was telling the truth. For what I think, because I think he knew that he was, he was carrying the man went to a column. I think he knew that that had not been used that day, that it was a plane. So when Ricky was asked what make a rifle was used, you know, he was a bit of free. And uh, you know, that fits put in the uh, you know, put in the uh, the onus on Fraser as to how what he was involved in was. And uh, I really uh, I really hope he comes out with the truth before he dies, because he's um uh, looks to me like he's been hiding it. Really, my, uh, I've been living my life, I've been 
Yeah, that, that whole charade and story, and, and here recently, uh, a buddy of mine, Steve Rowe, he he actually found uh, Bill Frazier's lie detector test results in in the archives, and they are restricted due to national security still. Holy cow. Holy cow. I wasn't aware of that. Wow. Yeah. Um, I thought they had disappeared. And no. They They're there. And uh, they, 
I think they made a big show of of taking those three guys to Washington D.C. You know, and bringing them in front of this official, you know, Warren Commission, and you know, instead of questioning them in Dallas, and probably intimidated the hell out of them. You know. Yeah, they had no choice but to play along. Yeah, kind of like Amos Ewins. Well, my ex actually is um, titled the Kill Team. Uh, you know, a second uh, check on this to see what the 
they come up with. But um, I I don't think he was his father, but he still could have been. You know, I think he, like he said, when he was sitting he was 10 feet on the west elevator, when the shots came out, uh, uh, I think he was truthful uh, on that respect. But there, were, um, there was a bronze father and a cocky chariot. There was also a, 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 either a brown suitcoat man or a dark shirt man. Um, he was another spotter. And then you have a, a sniper in the southwest window, and you have a, a black black sniper in the uh, sniper's tent. So, I mean, that is uh, what I got from people who are up on the sixth floor. So, this is about four people. They all had to pile into the west. Right. I think just for um, just for um, simplicity's sake, we wouldn't want to have one elevator thick, one of the fifth, when the shooting was happening. They were seen both up on the fifth, right? Like, and Baker. So if you just bring one down, one floor, you're really risking uh, somebody just getting too excited, just doing something. See him, right? yeah. Well, so, so, some something else I've heard also, and I, I'm pretty sure it was in like a you know a first day newspaper or something that uh, there was a report that the sniper supposedly had, had um, ran down to the fifth floor and got on the elevator, but there was a, a gun stashed on the fifth floor. Um, which, you know, could have been a second gun, um, you know, like an infield or, or something else that never got reported. Um, because, you know, there was a lot of confusion that day. There was a lot of officers with, 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 you know, shotguns and rifles walking around there yeah. and they could have easily got another rifle out of there if they, if they, you know, without really being noticed if they tried. I've become more hard-nosed as far as 
far as what I accept. Uh, I mean, one one thing I uh, <clears throat> first was intrigued with was the uh, count by uh, uh, Frank Ellsworth. He was an ATF agent, Dick Russell, and he had said that the rifle was discovered on the fourth floor. <laughs> I thought this was this was a uh, you know. Uh, you know, just a lead that no one had ever followed up. Right. Nowadays, I, 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 without corroboration, I um, have a look at that. It's just uh, probably a bad memory. Um, yeah. Um, just, uh, yeah. The, yeah, or the police misidentifying a floor of a building you're exactly. not familiar with. Only is not remembering it straight. You know, that's what, uh, you, you often like to have corroboration. But unfortunately, with the Eddie Shields story, you don't have any. He's like this is one uh, one source for that story that Fraser has not offered the building. So you never want to just don't know the end, you know, how yeah. well, the thing was he's never it's all always been softball stuff that's been tossed to him. I totally agree. You know, they trot him out every couple of years for a news story yeah. and then, then he goes back. Yeah. He's never been, uh, you know, talked to by a researcher and, and, yeah. and asked the hard questions. I mean, I know they talked to him for the assassination tapes, but they were softballing him there, too, because they didn't want to make him mad and have him hang up. And they were just looking for lies. They really weren't uh, worried about, you know, answers to questions. They were just trying to perceive whether or not Frazier was being honest with them. And, of course, they yeah. determined there that he wasn't. <laughs> so... Uh, but yeah, Frazier's an odd character. You know, he's, uh, uh, I think he's got some more answering to do, most definitely. Most definitely. And uh, apparently he was writing uh, memoirs or something, but I mean, uh, I haven't seen that yet. And uh, I'd just be uh, kind of skeptical as to what was contained in that. Yeah. So I don't know what he's up to. Based uh, on what he said so far, I, you know, I. I wouldn't expect much, um, you know, unless somebody actually calls him on some of this stuff and, and, and gets him to answer these questions. I mean, you know, when I was talking about the prayer man thing, you know, somebody had uh, had shown Frazier a copy of, of the Darnell still and asked, you know, if he because it's pretty obvious that Frazier would have seen whoever this prayer man was. Um and they asked him, you know, did he see this person and who it was? And he he couldn't identify him. He and he said he couldn't even identify himself in the photo, which is it's quite obvious who Fraser is in that photo, you know. Right, right. But they said he wouldn't even identify he, himself. He, he got touch that. I don't think you know he's going to uh, volunteer or anything about um, who Fraser Man is. That's the thing, you know. He's not gonna, you can't look at him to help you out on that question. No. He ain't gonna. Uh, Convict himself, you know. And, uh, the next question would be, why have you been hiding it for 50 years? You know, so. Yeah, there's got to be a reason, you know. And last year, I went, I went to, uh, I went to a conference, and I, I went to the wrong conference, I think, Richard, because there was a lot of other people that I would have rather talked to at the art conference. Um, I kind of went to what I refer to as the kook conference, uh, you know, with people like Judy Baker and uh, other people like that there. And I, if I'd have been at the other place, you better believe I would have I would have got a hold of Frazier and, and asked him some questions and see what he said. But 
unfortunately I went to the wrong one and I wasn't in Dallas last year and you know it's hard to get yourself at, at the same places as, as these people because look a lot of people in the yeah. community look to Frazier as this sweet little old man who you know he's a sacred cow to them and, and if you say a bad thing about Frazier boy they are on you and on you quick right, and right. it's almost like they're afraid well, to question him you know Sometimes we don't tell the truth, as the old song goes. Um, well, I have my next section here called Two White Men, which is uh, uh, something that uh, Baker had remarked in um, some of the testimony there. Uh, that he tried to get on the elevator and I said, Man, I'm sitting on this side, another one from 20, 30 feet away, you know, someone's looking at us. And, uh, Never, you get interrupted after that. Um, Alan Dawes asked him, uh, who a white man? He said, yeah. And uh, they went off on a tangent for about 15 minutes. He never, when they came back to that question, they, he never mentioned the two white men again. So uh, I don't wonder whether these guys were um, the same guys that were, uh, that um, Sergeant David Harkness ran into at 1236 in the rear of the repository because he ran some well-known uh, guys posing as secret service. Right. And um, so I had a, uh, I had an email exchange um, off of Barry Ernest's office and uh, he informed me that um, other than the black man, Baker said, said he saw no one else standing at the elevators or on the stairs. So I had to wonder, did he just totally Get this, or um, was it um, kind of intimidated by those since they were uh, white guys? Because um, uh, Barry Ernst suggested that uh, um, he had seen Eddie Piper. But Piper had said in his testimony that he was standing back there uh, 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 saying, Mr. Truly, uh, you know, he didn't know about me, uh, where the elevators were. And, uh, so it was Troy Weston and Eddie Piper back there. But um, Piper had a uh, kind of distinctive uh, outfit on that day. He was dressed in a uh, Kaki uh, cabbage uniform, and he had a cap on, too. I think that would probably be something that would be remembered. Yeah. And, um, well, the, the weird thing is, is that uh, these cabbies, if you really study the photos, a whole bunch of cabbies are in the... Uh, uh, Jim Murray photos of the crowd around the repository uh, around 15 minutes after the assassination. They must have all converged on Hewlett uh, Plaza. And then you see uh, uh, Harold Norman, who's also wearing a cabinet uniform, in the reenactment photos. So kind of, I think it was something that was, uh, that, you know, the guys liked as far as hard work where he styled it. They uh, wore that outfit. So right. I, I, um, I think what Baker ran into was a couple of uh, feds uh, uh, who just uh, basically um, were real good at blending into the background. And I think he just playing a lot about them uh, you know, when he talked to Barry Ernest or when he died. Yeah. Um, so it was kind of interesting. I also, uh, there is a uh, definite posture that uh, a guy that Malcolm Summers had run into he ran up the Noel Walkway, a guy in the uh, car we had. 
carried an old coat of, over his arm. He had a uh, packet, some kind of uh, firearm underneath that overcoat. Right. We picture him, uh, he had a darn hell I had a look at Danny Arcade. I had a change my mind about Danny Arcade. I think he, it looks like he had a walkie talkie. Uh, he was close up with the Alton solo, but I think that's actually uh, uh, a mistake of the uh, perspective of this photo. I think that's actually something jutting off from the uh, follow up car behind Albie J. But it was real strange that when he's photographed it, now text, which is to talk about something entirely different than where he um, standing on uh, My last section here is on James Powell. That's really the uh, oh, yeah. but, um, he's, uh, he's an Army intelligence. He's only 24 years old. And uh, I identified him at Lancer around 2010, I think. And uh, uh, the, uh, the physical description of him uh, 1978 HSCA interview that matches the description of the guy, the Alcan photo, and that's the white line he had. And he gives a story about how he's gone out to Rockfield and photographed the president then, but those uh, never seen those pictures, they've never been made public. And then he, he says he went down to Austin, Maine.
you know, you would think that he would not have um, shared this information, but he waited 15 years. Yeah. Um, uh, and the kicker here is that um, you might think that he uh, went to this random spot, right next to this white laundry man, but he would probably be mistaken. Because it turns out that there was a, uh, uh, a researcher, Steve Osborne, who uh, had met an individual, uh, and he testified before the ARB, and uh, this individual uh, had been stationed at Fort Hood and said he was part of the uh, uh, team that had been assigned the task of observing and videotaping indicators went to the plaza and their camera signals were transported by wireless back to a control studio which is actually semi-tractor trailer. Now if you look at the uh, tower film, you see a semi-tractor trailer right behind the flying head. And Dunmark has a porthole right in front of the front part of its trailer. And uh, um, it would be the perfect place to have a control studio for a bunch of different cameras, um, you know, taking the monitor. Yeah. I would guess that's what happened. And that's it. Powell happened to be standing right next to the line van. And what's, what's super curious is that you can, uh, uh, I have the picture posted. It doesn't quite come out as soon as I would like. But if you look at Robin Under's uh, photo collection, photo gallery, you look at Jim Murray, pictures, you find one with a red sign, you see 1239 on the sign, but you can see the corner, that particular corner, beside the Dow Pets, and both the laundry van and the uh, semi-tractor trailer have um, vacated their position, there's a, um, like the, there's a bunch of traffic in that corner, and the big metal uh, trailer, it's a yellow on top of it, but it's a whole different thing. Those two vehicles have just left, and that's by 1239. So, I mean, that's very, very odd. Yeah, I always thought that was an odd spot for a laundry truck and a semi-truck. Well, but... yeah, I would think so as well. It would be a good place to have a uh, bunch of guys dressed up in laundry, cleaning uniforms, cleaning service, and with, uh, actually, you know, be a, a kill that went into the down
when I got a transcript, my free software expired. At that point, I used like the five hundred dollar software trying to decipher those on transcripts. I had a free trial expired. That is, that was the last word I got. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of explosive content on that tape, and I. I like to, you know, it's like super scratchy. You just, you can't, you can't listen to it. I mean, this is weird. This is, this is, when I went to the archives to, um, tape on this is the first one I went after, right? And, uh, uh, I mean, it's just, it's so scratchy. It's just like, you know, it's like, I'm through. I had listened to four hours of that. And this first tape that I tried was, um, at the nine minute mark, you know, like, it was all tied up in a knot. Like someone's taking a pencil. And uh, you know, it was really strange that the uh, uh, the uh, guy who was head of the uh, uh, audio visual department down the archives for the rest of the year later for taking stuff home. Hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what his deal was, but there's certainly you know, still to be paranoid. Yeah. Now, sure, I don't think that the uh, GAA has people all throughout that. But the uh, people I work with uh, down there were real helpful. It's really like the, the uh, you know, they work for you. They're, they're public servants. Right. Uh, you, know, you just have to consider that uh, if they're time, you, you want to have all the <laughs> particular uh, document numbers and stuff really down to a T. Right. Do your homework before you go. They say, they don't want to. Which now it's time for you to figure out something. So, uh, point where they go and go right in the back room and get you know, whatever particular folder. But, um, it's all there. And it's, it's, um, something that, uh, there really should be a team of researchers. Well, in 2017, when the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the 25 year limit, I guess, on the, uh, AFK Act, have to fork over their documents. I mean, there's going to be a whole ton of documents in the archives available. Um, really should be a team just hopping on that. There'll probably be thousands and thousands of pages to go through and find good stuff. Oh, yeah. And that audio you were talking about, you know, I stumbled across it the other day and I was, I actually asked you about it and, uh, and, uh, yeah, it's all. Post it up over at the ROKC forum if, if anybody would like to go have a listen and try to decipher it uh, or clean it up on, on you know on your own. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's, I think uh, well, um, some people are getting scared off because I know when I was involved uh, with that, I uh, interested this guy in Glasgow, I think it was. He um, initially had some interest, and then he got scared off, and just disappeared. Right. For CIA or something. Yeah, but there's no reason to fear that. They're just, uh, no, they're just there. I mean, the thing that the, um, nobody who works for the CIA today was involved with in the killing. They're probably as much in the dark as, you know, the, the, any other person. Right. I don't think the, uh, the, uh, uh, biggest secrets can get passed around there that much. Right. And, uh, so, you know, it's, it's like they can learn from us, too. I mean, that's probably a curiosity for them. You know, they, 
they can learn from us. You know, most of the people have been gone. Alan Bellis, Rick Collins, Dan Tang, Dick Ben Berry. Yeah. Um, they're not through there or the world of the meeting. So, um, yeah, there's, you know, one of my concluding things on the night, I say this, uh, this was a land-based assault. Terminated its target with its team, right? There's no way in my mind that there's a CIA command to precision kill Right. Very, uh, you know, and then I conclude the, uh, uh, with uh, the words of Marina Oswald, which was just really uh, poignant to me. To, uh, I think during the documentary, The Men Who Killed Kennedy, she's uh, really good. Danger of the truth not being known. Well, the story is fancy, actually. Well, maybe you don't believe it, but that's the fact. Uh, she's telling the truth. It will eventually destroy us. We have to live with it. We have to find some compromise. Not that the last 50 years have been uh, bad. They have been in the government. Government made us leave in November 1953. But we have to uh, come to terms with that. We can't. off to you man for for everything you've you've done and, and and what you still continue to do i mean that's what a lot of these lone nutters like to say that they're like oh well you got such a good case why don't you send it over to the dallas da then well you know what yeah. some of us just might do that <laughs> you know well yeah you know the DA actually was i knew those i found recently um stray watkins but seen a very close election like uh republican uh now uh, yeah, we definitely just, uh, what I'm reading from, uh, Bill Kelly's old, uh, uh, forum post for a grand jury right here. So the grand jury petition request is a citizen's petition to a district attorney responsible for prosecuting offenders to request a grand jury to be convened to review the facts of a case to determine if there is enough evidence to indict them under a crime. So, um, yeah, I, 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 I don't have a 
up on this, but I'm perfectly willing. I think we, if we set a goal for like one year, um, we can get a grand jury going for this. Because, I mean, you can really uh, make a case that the uh, monetary employees were involved in this crime. Right. And, uh, a lot of them were not, not only actively involved, but a lot of others were like accessories after the fact. Even not of their own will. You know, they were kind of coerced into it, especially all the black guys. You know, to lie, you know, Charles Given was forced to make up a story about seeing Oswald on the sixth floor. And, you know, he never went up there. Um, you know, it's just uh, it's a very winnable case, um, and you know, I think grand jury rather than just have a, something that would uh, have like uh, the consensus of researchers, you know, be that uh, you know, people who feel that like uh, you know, yeah, okay. Whereas if you have a court finding of it, if the court steal, the court uh is imprimatur, uh, you know, court sanction finding, that, that stuff, you can't avoid um, that getting to the mainstream media, you know. Especially also if you have um, alternative media, people covering the proceedings of the grand jury, you know, that would be done. I think Bill is really off the first to pursue this. I think the uh, election year coming up, the media, uh, the government media complex is kind of a little bit on the soft spot right now. You know, they're not hurting. They have an outgoing administration. You want to come in. And, uh, you know, with events the way they are, I mean, uh, the whole cables turned right now in Syria. contribution is, is greatly appreciated and I hope I hope the listeners will, will, will take you know another look at, at this Texas school book depository and these workers and uh, you know really really get into this stuff and not not dismiss it out of hand because it, it doesn't go along with the official story that we've all been uh, told over these years you know and I was wondering um, have you nailed down a, uh, a release date for for the uh, for the article? Hey, which now for the article? Hey, 
a release date or where? Yeah, no, but I'm wondering on my publisher. I think he might be willing to listen to some of the interviews. Okay. For one, appreciate all your hard work, and, and I know the listeners will too. And Richard, I really, really appreciate it. Uh, this this fifty was it the second anniversary of the Kennedy assassination. And thank you so much for joining me, man. Is, is there uh, is there anything else you wanted to add before we before we uh, get out of here? problem at all I, I i really appreciate you coming on and doing this and, and sharing this information with me and my listeners and uh richard you hang on the line for me while i talk us out people um head over to tlgpodcast.com for all relative links pictures uh, we're going to have the stuff up there that we talked about um and i hope you really enjoyed richard gilbride and i thank him very much for for spending uh, a lot of his time with us here in the past couple weeks to try and open your eyes and, and help you see things in a new light. And uh, that's it for this week, people. The sun bitch is in the can, beamed up the satellite down directly to your ears. This is your boy. Peace. The freaks on the phone won't leave me alone. So don't give me that brother, 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 brother.
to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. You do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. <laughs> 